This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Good morning. Good morning. I don't want, I don't want to interrupt the moment. So if you're still in communion, be. Enjoy. Pay no attention to the man on the stage. Okay, now pay attention to me. So, uh, where do we go from here? Uh, Easter is over. Although we do celebrate the resurrection of Jesus each week, as you're doing right now, but it's kind of like coming in after the big game. It's kind of this post-game wall. Where do we go from here? I'm Kevin, and I'm one of the pastors. I get to talk about where we go from here. Because it's not just a question that we face. It's a question that I think the early church faced. Where, Where do they go? They had Jesus with them. Jesus died. God raised him from the dead. God changed everything. God was doing uh, a new thing in his people. And and then they're left with the question, so now what? Where do we go from here? What does this mean for our lives? I thought, why don't we look at the early church for a few weeks and figure out where they went after Jesus raised from the dead? How his life, his death, his resurrection brought them to a new place in being, a new life, a new reality, a new world, a new hope for the future. To understand where uh, the early church was coming from, we have to know a little bit about the world that they lived in. So we're going to be in the book of Acts today. Uh, And when the book of Acts was written, the Romans were in power. They were the, the world superpower of the time. And the Romans would go around and they would come to a village. They would conquer that village by any means necessary, by coercion, by force, by war, through death. They would take the village. They would claim the village as a a Roman village. And then they would force the people to claim things about Rome, that Rome was the ultimate way of life, that Rome was the superpower, that Caesar was the lord of all, that Caesar was from God and given to the people. So this was uh, the type of life that the book of Acts was written in, the type of community. They would go around these Romans and they would force people to believe the things that they believed. And they would call these new communities that they had conquered, they'd call them ecclesia. Say ecclesia. Ecclesia, it's a Greek word, ecclesia. They call these groups the, the ecclesia of Rome. These ecclesias were marked uh, by a few realities. or or at least Roman realities. One was that Rome was the ultimate, the best, the apex of all of creation. Two was that uh, the Roman way of life was the only way of life. Three was that Caesar was the lord of all things. That that Caesar was the one who was, was really God, divine, or at least one of the gods. That's the world that this church, this Jesus movement, came into. But see, Jesus raised from the dead. He conquered death, and he told the people that death doesn't have the final say, that maybe the things that we see in this world aren't actually the ultimate reality of all things, but that God was doing something new, that God was restoring life to the people, that God was bringing about a new creation, 
Uh, There's an ancient Hebrew word called shalom, and shalom means a restoring of all things, that God was bringing shalom. It's not just uh, a restoring of people to God, but it was a restoring of people to each other. It was a restoring of people to the earth, and and Jesus was bringing this type of shalom. And so uh, the group got together, these early Christians got together, and they said, you know what? We don't believe in the Roman ecclesia. We believe in a Christian ecclesia, a Jesus ecclesia. That word ecclesia in the Greek is where we get the English word church. And so we're going to talk about being an ecclesia, being a church together, being the church together. We're going to talk about how Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection brought about a new way of living in community, a community that was marked by the thumbprint of God. You see, God has been expanding our influence at New Life. God has been growing this church, this community, to impact Sonoma County. And I would say even to impact larger than that, California, the United States, even the world. I think God is doing something powerful in this community to impact uh, larger communities around us. And so we need to ask ourselves, what's it mean for us now in this day and this time with the reality of Jesus' resurrection to be the church, to be an ecclesia, Now, it was a dangerous thing for these early Christians to be this community because they were saying, you know what, Roman way isn't necessarily the only way or the right way, that Jesus' way can be different and Jesus' way can be right, marked by love and peace and joy and truth and the presence of God. And it actually got them in trouble when you diverge from the Roman way. Ultimately, that often led to death, to the cross. And so I invite you in this moment, are you willing to take that journey with this community, a a journey that could ultimately be difficult, but really is the only way to live, really is the true way to follow after the one who was raised from the dead, who has brought about new life. This is where we're going today. Are you with me? Okay, good. Half of us are with me. The other half, you'll get there. You'll get with me soon. I'm not going to lie to you up here. This is good. Now, I want to make a little distinction here. We are in a church. New Life is a church. This building is a gift from God. It is the church that God gave us to meet together, to worship together, to help the community of faith here at New Life experience God, and to help the community outside of New Life in Petaluma, Santa Rosa, Roner Park experience God. So this is a great gift. This is our church. In the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about what it means to um, be good stewards of our church, of this place so that people can experience God, so that we will experience God and so that the communities around us will experience God. But for the next two weeks, we're going to talk about church as a community, as a people, as a living, breathing thing, as this moving creation that God has formed together as we come to experience him. But I'm getting, I'm getting ahead of myself. I apologize. Let me slow down. Acts chapter 2 is where we're going to be. In the beginning of Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches to a whole bunch of Jewish people. And uh, the Bible says that 3,000 of them came to believe that Jesus was the one. And so then they said, so now what do we do? And Peter says to them, well, you, you repent, you believe in Jesus, you get baptized. And then we see the outpouring of that coming on. Acts chapter 2 verse 42 says this, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to the fellowship and the breaking of bread, and everyone was filled with awe. Many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together, and they held everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone who had need. Every day, 
they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, and they praised God. They enjoyed the favor of the people, and the Lord added daily to their number those who were being saved. We learned six things about community through Acts chapter 2, verse 42 and 47. I'm going to talk about the first three things, and Ron's going to come back next week, and he's going to take us home with the last three things. So the first three things that we learn about in Acts chapter, 40, chapter 2, verse 42, are teaching. The believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The believers devoted themselves to fellowship and to food, and the believers devoted themselves to prayer. And then the next verse says, they saw many miraculous things happening in their community through God. So let's start from the very beginning, because as uh, we learn from the sound of music, it's a very good place to start. So, uh, they de- <laughs> stop singing it, pay attention. <laughs> they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It says all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, but what does that mean, to dev- devote yourself to teaching, to the apostles' teaching? Well, Apostles were people sent with authority, sent by God with authority. So um, somewhat a present-day equivalent, although I would never call a pastor necessarily one of the apostles in this sense, but it means coming together to hear a teaching from someone who has been given authority by God, who you have given authority to. When you come to church, you're somewhat—you're devoting yourselves to a teaching. You're learning things about God. But is it purely academic? Are we here just to uh, know what the book of Habakkuk says in verse— Uh, 12 of chapter 1? Probably not. I don't even know if there is a verse 12 of chapter 1, but I'm assuming there is. You know if there is. You can tell me. Uh, Is it just gaining head knowledge about God? Is that the point of devoting ourselves to a teaching? I think oftentimes in the church, uh, we fall under the the mistaken idea that that is why we come to church on Sunday. We want to learn more about God. And that's not a bad thing. It's not bad to learn about God. But in the book of James, uh, listen to what the author says. In James chapter 1, verse 22, he says, Don't merely listen to the word, that's uh, the word of God, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says, it's like a man who looks at his face in a mirror, and after looking at himself, he goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law, the law that gives freedom, and when James talks about the perfect law, he's talking about the Bible. Anyone who looks into the law that Jesus brings, the law that gives freedom, and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. A few few years ago, some friends and I got to go to Costa Rica, and uh, and we were taking um, food up into communities that uh, no cars could get to. Only tractors or airlifts could get food into these communities. So we would backpack food into these communities, and we would set up some medical clinics and do some really cool stuff. It was a lot of fun. Uh, and one of the villages that we were staying in, there were no windows on the, the huts or the houses. Um, they weren't huts. They were houses. And uh, there were no mirrors there. And so for a week, after a week, I realized, well, I don't know what I look like. I, I can't remember what I look like exactly, which was a good thing because uh, we were bathing in a river, and uh, one day bathing in the river, I got out, and there was a tick behind my ear, and another day bathing in the river, I'm not joking, a fish bit me on the leg. So you can, this wasn't the cleanest of circumstances, so maybe it wasn't a bad thing that we couldn't see what we looked like, um, but nonetheless, it was a weird feeling. 
I mean, think about it. We brush our teeth and we look at ourselves in the mirror. We wash our hands and we look at ourselves in the mirror. We go to Target and there's a tinted window in the, for the car park next to us and we look at ourselves in the window and then we realize there's someone sitting in the back seat looking at us. Um, right? We, we see our reflection a lot. Uh, it, it happens. It happens. And, and so it becomes kind of commonplace. But in the ancient world, only the extremely wealthy had access to a mirror. And so for the majority of the people, especially the people that James is talking to, they wouldn't have a mirror. You might see yourself once or maybe twice in your life. Now, now think about that. You're 10, you're 15, you're 20 years old, and all of a sudden you see yourself in a mirror for the first time. You see your reflection for the first time, and you, oh, that's, that's what my nose looks like. Oh, that's what color my eyes are. Oh, that's, that's my hair. Okay, I'm seeing it. I'm putting it together. Okay, these are my ears. That's why my hat doesn't fit correctly. Okay, I see. Okay. I mean, think about that. You, you would soak in the features, right? You haven't seen yourself ever in a mirror, and all of a sudden you, you see yourself. Wow, that's, that's what I look like. That's, a, that's amazing. Good job, God. <laughs> think about seeing yourself in a mirror and then walking away and, and immediately forgetting what you look like. That's crazy. That's cra- Who would do that? That's crazy. But James says that's what happens if you read the Bible, if you devote yourself to a teaching just to know about God, but don't put into action what it says. It's like looking at yourself in a mirror and then walking away and forgetting what you look like. A guy asked Jesus one time, what's the most important command? And and you guys probably know the answer. Uh, He said the most important command is to love God with everything that you have, with everything that you are. He said, I'll give you a freebie. The second most important command is love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus goes on to say, all of the law, everything in the Bible, all of the law and everything that the prophets taught about, it falls into one of those two categories, loving God, loving your neighbor. So devoting ourselves to teaching, it's a way to help us encounter God in a way that transforms our lives. Devoting ourselves to teaching helps us to encounter God in a way that transforms our lives. It's not enough to just come on Sunday morning and hear a pastor. They could be the most talented pastor in the world. They could be funny and smart, and you could, you could learn a lot about what the Bible says. But if we don't take that and translate that into transformation, we've missed it. Devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching means to encounter God's truth in a way that transforms our actions, transforms our lives. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in a moment. So the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and they devoted themselves to fellowship and to the breaking of bread. Now, food in the ancient world uh, was about nourishment. It was about feeding your body, but it was about a lot more than feeding your body. Food in the ancient world was about family. Meals would be hours long where you would just engage with your family, engage with your friends. It was about coming together. It was about sharing life. Uh, The major holidays in the Jewish tradition centered around feasts, around food, around table fellowship, around being together. So food was a lot more than just coming together to get a little bit for your body. It was about having intimate, deep, passionate relationships. Um, I have the privilege of marrying into a Lebanese family, a Middle Eastern family, uh, and the Middle Eastern community has, has really drawn on this idea of food as more than just nourishment, food as really inviting people in. To have someone at your table for dinner 
is a big deal. It means that you are making them part of yourself, part of your family. I remember when Maria and I were dating our first Thanksgiving, she invited me out to Illinois to be with her family for Thanksgiving. And we are, we're up together on Thanksgiving morning. And I said, so how many boyfriends have you brought home for Thanksgiving? She said, none. I have none. She was, she was blown away that I would ask that question. I said, well, why not? You know, this would cause a flag for many of us, right? Uh, why haven't you ever brought a boyfriend home? Oh, well, in my family, if you bring someone home for a holiday, uh, that means that you're serious. That means that you're probably going to get married. Oh, oh. <laughs> well, that's good to know. I already had the ring at that point, but she didn't know that. I said, oh, well, that's, that's good, uh, good to know. And you have to understand something about uh, my family and Maria's family. I have one brother. Maria has eight brothers and sisters. In my extended family on my mom's side, there are 10 of us. In Maria's extended family on her mom's side, there are about 150 people. Uh, only 70 or 80 or so people were at this Thanksgiving. So we drive to Thanksgiving, and she says, I should probably warn you a little more. I said, you should have warned me weeks ago. I should probably warn you that they're going to invite us into the main table where all of the elders in the family sit, and they're going to they're gonna ask you questions uh, during dinner. So just be ready for it. And sure enough, we get there. We make small talk. Um, in, in the Lebanese uh, culture tradition, there's a, a raw lamb dish, uh, which is delicious, actually, that the family makes. And they mark it with a cross. And my mother-in-law told me it's so that you don't get food poisoning from it. You mark it with the cross. So we're going through the line, and I get my food, and, and she kind of nudges me, you know, take that right there. So I take some of the raw lamb dish and put it on, and we say grace, and the whole family just watches me. I mean, they're kind of eating, but not really. They're just kind of watching. And I, I, I grab the raw lamb, and I eat it. Oh, that is delicious, I tell them. Okay, good. So then they start talking to me, and that's when the questions start. Literally an hour and a half of questions. Directly across from me was the head, uh, the patriarch of the family. Next to him were Maria's mother and father, and then aunts and uncles and cousins and brothers and family all around. At one point, I even had three or four uncles standing above me, behind me, like this. I mean, questions everything from what's that ring that you're wearing on your finger? It looks like you had earrings at one point. What's the deal with that? Um, her one brother or one cousin who works in D.C. asked me, what's the biggest social issue facing America today? So that's a, that's a great question. Glad you asked. Sip of water, sip of water. But I nailed it. You see, that dinner was about whether or not they would invite me into the family, whether or not I could marry Maria, whether or not I was right to be part of this clan, this community. Ultimately, they decided that I was, which I appreciate. If you're listening in Illinois, thank you, mom and dad, for welcoming me into your family. I love you. Uh, But devoting ourselves to fellowship and breaking of bread helps us become a community that shares life together. Uh, Yes, it's about food, but really um, the food we can think of as a metaphor for sharing life. Who are the people that you're going to invite in to your meal? Who are the people that are sitting around that are going to be part of your community? Who are we going to invite in to share life with? They broke bread. They had fellowship. It was about inviting people in, but it was about more than that, at least for the Romans. For the Romans, uh, food was also about what you could get from the other person. Remember, we're living in a Roman world at this point in Acts, when Acts is written. 
It's about what you could get from the person. So you would only invite someone over who was of an equal status as you or a greater status as you. You would talk about marrying your children together. You would talk about trading together. You would talk about business ventures. It was always about what you could receive from the other person. You would put on a big dinner so that they would then invite you to their house for a big dinner and you would come together. Meals were where you formed work relationships and you would only have meals with people who were of the same social standing as you or a greater social standing as you. I'm struck uh, by Jesus' words in Luke chapter 14, because he kind of takes this idea and he flips it on his head. In Luke 14, Jesus says this about eating together. When you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers or your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back. Remember, that was the culture. It was reciprocal. You invite them, they invite you, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, invite the crippled, invite the lame, invite the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Should we have our friends and our family over for dinner? Absolutely. Should we engage with people of the same social standing as us? Sure. There's nothing wrong with that. But Jesus expands our vision of family. He expands our vision of friendship to include the poor, the blind, the lame, the beggar. Almost three years ago, uh, today, to this day, I was invited out to Ohio State University. The college was putting on, uh, the Christian ministry was putting on a big outreach there, and they invited a few of us from around the nation to come and to help lead that, to be part of it. Uh, When I was there, I met a woman named Marlene sitting on a bench, so I went up to Marlene, and we started talking. Marlene was in her 40s or 50s. Uh, Marlene, I found, came to find out, was homeless. She sleeps in the park just outside of the campus. Uh, so I said to Marlene, hey, you want to go grab some lunch together? I have a few minutes. She said, sure, let's grab lunch. So we walked to the student union, and we, uh, we got some lunch, and we sat down together in a crowded union. We started eating. We started talking about life, and it was a really a, a sweet time, a fun time. And all of a sudden, uh, as I'm talking with her and I'm eating, I see a man walking around, a college student, And he's passing out um, coupons for something. I can't remember what it was. Passing out coupons. And so he's walking the table and he's explaining what he's doing and he's passing out his coupon. Uh, And we make eye contact, which I know means he's going to come over to us. And so he walks over to us uh, and he starts telling me his his spiel about what he's doing and his his coupons. And he hands me one. So I thank him. And then he goes to the person next to me, not Marlene. She's sitting across from me. He goes to the person next to me and he hands them one. And and I kind of hold it in my hand and I look at him for a minute. And then I hand the coupon to Marlene, and I say, can I have another one, please? And uh, he gives it to me. And then he walks away, and Marlene looked at me and she said, did you see that? He wasn't going to give me one. He didn't even acknowledge that I was there. I said, yeah, I did see that, and I'm, man, I'm sorry about that. A few minutes later, uh, I excused myself, and as I was, I think I was uh, heading to the restroom, and I saw this man again. So I walked up to him, and I said, can I ask you a question? So how come you, you gave me a coupon, but you didn't give a, a coupon to my, my friend who was sitting across from me? He said, oh, well, I just, I didn't think she would want one. I said, you know, she, she did want one, and it makes me sad that you just kind of walked right past her. He said, oh, I'm sorry for doing that, and would you want me to go apologize to her? I said, no, no, you don't need to apologize. I just, you know, in the future, if you see someone, I'd love for you to, to give it to, to her as well. So I walked back, and I 
sat down with Marlene and we continued to talk about life. She told me about growing up and uh, stealing tomatoes from her grandmother's garden when she was a kid, when her grandma wasn't looking. She told me about how she believes in God. She quoted Psalm 27 to me, and I had to take her word for it because I had not memorized Psalm 27. But Psalm 27 talks about even if my parents forsake me, even if all other people forsake me, the Lord will not forsake me. The Lord is with me. The Lord loves me. The Lord will call me to himself. Uh, at the end of our time together, she asked if we could pray. Being a praying person myself, I said, sure, let's pray. And I extended my hand to her, and she looked at it for a second, uh, and she hesitated, and then she put her hand in my hand, and we prayed. And in that moment as we were praying, I wondered, when was the last time someone held Marlene's hand? When was the last time someone touched Marlene? I left uh, that time both happy about getting to share life with Marlene for a few minutes and sad that, that like the guy with the coupon, I had overlooked brothers and sisters like Marlene from time to time. I'm a crier, so I cried. I prayed, and then I asked God, would you show me the people that I'm missing? Would you show me the brothers and sisters that I overlook? Because uh, community is about uh, sharing life with people that the rest of the world misses. For Christians, uh, it's more than just sharing life. Food is more than sharing life with people who are like us. It's about sharing life with people who are uh, missed, overlooked by the rest of the world. And whenever I get sad about Marlene's story, I think about places where I see this happening, and it's happening all over our church, and it makes me happy. It makes me smile. I think about every Sunday when I come in and I see uh, one or two dogs being trained up to be uh, seeing eye dogs. People who train up these cute little puppies uh, to then give them away to other people so that other people can have a little extra help. I see this happening uh, in friends, some of you in this room, who get up every Saturday morning and you go and you um, put food boxes together to give to folks who don't have food. I, I see this happening when I see my friends who got back from Mexico yawning because they got in at 11 o'clock last night from building a house for a woman who didn't have a house. I see it happening and I'm excited about it. And my question for each of us is, what is God inviting you into? What is God inviting me into? Who is God inviting us to share a meal with? Who's that person? Who's that group that's being overlooked that God might be inviting you to share a meal with? Because man, it is good. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and then they did it. They devoted themselves to fellowship and food. And thirdly, they devoted themselves to prayer. I've been talking for a while, so let's watch a little video about prayer. When it comes time to pray, we've discovered that many Christians panic over the very thought of being called on. We often take drastic measures to ensure we're not the ones being asked to lead in prayer. That's why we've created a two-disc DVD set, Prayer Master. Now you can throw your prayer concerns as far away as east from west. With Prayer Master, we cover it all. Um, Is your prayer full of ums? And, um... Prayer Master Solution, simply substitute um with Father. Just been beautiful weather, Father. And, and Father, we Father, we lift up these prayer requests to you, Father. We know now that's supplication. Lives, Not only will Prayer Master make you sound holier, it'll make you look holier, simply by mastering some praying stances. Learn from our black belt in Prayer Master, Master Reverend Thurgood. Once you've mastered the pros and the pose... You'll also learn how to become a better prayer listener. Prayer Master will teach you how to place those affirming grunts at the appropriate times. Mm -hmm. 
Not since the WWJD bracelet has any product made it so easy to make a holy first impression. With Prayer Master, we'll have you prepared to look good praying in any situation. In this desolate hour, you know the sorrow that has befallen us. Lord, you giveth and you taketh away. We find solace in knowing that death has already been conquered by our Lord Almighty. Amen and amen. So what if you weren't born with the spiritual gift of prayer? Now it can be yours for just three easy payments of $29.99. Buy Prayer Master right now. Not only will you receive the DVD set, but we'll also throw in a cassette tape featuring prayers narrated by Charlton Heston's second cousin. Now, next time someone asks... Who wants to pray? You can say... I do. I didn't write it, but I appreciate the applause. Thank you. Do you ever wonder how to pray, why to pray, what to pray, when to pray? Does it ever kind of get you a little bit nervous? Whether you're praying in a group or praying by yourself, do you ever feel that tension? Uh, I want to read a few prayers by a guy named David. And David is arguably uh, the best king, the greatest king in the entire Old Testament. Uh, The Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. And so I want to read some of his prayers to us and then talk about those for a minute. Um, If you want to look at more of his prayers, they're in the book of Psalms. We're going to read a couple of Psalms. Psalm 30 says this, I will exalt you, O Lord, for you have lifted me out of the depths. You did not let my enemies gloat over me. O Lord, my God, I called you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you brought me from the grave. You spared me from going down into the pit. It's a a good prayer. That's a prayer of praise. Psalm 51, 21 prayers later, uh, David just got caught for having an affair. And then uh, the woman gets pregnant and David has her husband killed and he gets caught. It gets brought into the light. And so Psalm 51, David says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak justified and when you judge. Psalm 20, uh, David says a prayer for other people. He says, May the Lord answer you when you're in distress. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from his sanctuary and grant you support from Zion. May he remember you and all your sacrifices and accept your burnt offerings. May he give you the desires of your heart and may he make your plans succeed. We will shout for joy when you are victorious. We will lift up the banners in the name of our God. May the Lord grant all of your requests. Now, David, I, I gotta say, David was a feeler, which is why I, I'm drawn to him, right? He's, he's very emotion-based. He likes that. If you're not a feeler, it's okay. But, but can you hear the different pieces of David? Either David has voices fighting for control in his head, or David prayed in different circumstances. See, David prayed when he was happy. David prayed when he was sad. David prayed when he was angry. David prayed when he was depressed. David prayed when he was worried. David prayed for his friends. David prayed for his family. David prayed for himself. I don't think there is a perfect prayer that we have to pray. I think that prayer is about pouring our hearts out to God and and in the process of that, lining our hearts up with the heart of God. Prayer is about pouring our hearts out to God and in the process of that, lining 
our hearts up with the heart of God. Prayer's about being honest with God, being vulnerable. He can take it. He's God. Uh, in Psalm 139, the same guy, David, says, Before a word is even on my lips, you know it, Lord. And so we just pray to God what he already knows. We are honest with God. We are vulnerable before God. That's what it means to pray. The words that you say, uh, you don't need to be self-conscious of, about them because God knows your heart. So be vulnerable. Be honest. Be real. When you're hurting, tell God, I am hurting. When you have questions, say, God, I have questions about this. God can handle it. Faith is not the absence of questions. Faith is coming to God in the midst of questions and seeking answers. So come to God with your questions. Come to God with your hopes. Come to God with your dreams. That's prayer. And in the midst of that, we line our hearts up with the heart of God. We pray the things that are on God's heart, and God meets us in that. And Acts 2, verse 43, closes by saying that God was doing miraculous things in and through the community. God was doing miracles, miracles in the community. When we live this type of church experience, we're going to see God do amazing things. We can't help but see God do amazing things because we're seeking after God together, and God promises that he'll meet us in that. God's going to do miraculous things when we devote ourselves to Scripture and when we learn how to follow after Him. God's going to do miraculous things when we invite people into our lives, when we open ourselves up to others. God's going to do miraculous things when we begin to see the people that the rest of the world misses. We begin to love the people that the rest of the world ignores. We begin to experience humanity with the human beings that God created. And God will do miraculous things when we pray honestly to him, when we pour our hearts out to him. Friends, thank you for being the church community with me. Thank you for being this ecclesia. Thank you for allowing me to be the church community with you. Thank you for choosing to be part of this thing that God is doing that isn't always easy, but it's always good. Let's continue to look for ways as God grows our community as God develops our community, as God gives us influence in Petaluma, Santa Rosa, Rohnert Park, let's look for ways to continue to be this type of church together because that's what God's inviting us into and that's where God wants to meet us. Let me pray. God, thank you for the work uh, that you are always doing. Thank you that uh, we celebrate the resurrection each Sunday, that we celebrate your resurrection each day and the new reality that that brings. Thank you, God, that you have marked our community with your thumbprint. Thank you, God, that you are hearing our prayers. Thank you, God, that you are meeting our needs. We pray that you would meet the needs of brothers and sisters that the rest of the world overlooks. Would you make us uh, people who meet their needs as well? God, as you continue to grow us, would you keep us open to the things of you, to the ways that you're guiding and the ways that you're leading? We want to follow after you, Jesus, in all things. Amen. And amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.